Hello, and welcome to the Investment Week podcast for November, where we analyse the biggest investment news stories and speak to the leading investors about the most important issues on their minds. I'm your host, Anna Fedorova. I'm the news editor of Investment Week. Investment Week has been the premier publication serving professional investors in the UK since 1995. You can find out more about us by visiting www.investmentweek.co.uk. In this episode of the podcast, we will discuss the macro situation in China and what this means for investment in the region. The economic slowdown in China has been one of the main concerns for investors this year and has caused considerable market sell-offs, including the Black Monday scenario that happened on the 24th of August. With me in the studio to discuss this following his research trip to the country is Ed Smith, Asset Allocation Strategist at Rathbones. Thank you for joining me, Ed. It's a pleasure. So, um, to start off with, what are the main observations following your research trip to the country then? Well, I think it really reaffirmed my view of China as a as a two-speed uh, economy. You've got the old China, uh, the heavy industry, the mining, the factories producing low-value-added goods for, for export to the West. That's struggling. Uh, and indeed, yeah, it, it, it's, it's not likely to rebound. Um, although it was heartening to hear many of the state-owned companies who dominate that uh, aspect of China actually being very open about the problems of overcapacity there. They do recognise the problem, at least. So you've got the old China that's slowing, and then you've got the new China the middle class consumption, the services, the move up the value chain into higher tech goods, that's actually doing really well. You know, you've got companies uh, you know, making a lot of money flogging moisturiser for 25 mm. quid a bottle, which you know, that price really startled me. And that's not even their premium brand. Mm. Or you've got um, flats in new apartment complexes in Shanghai's equivalent of Hackney going for 2 million US dollars up 11% from three months ago when they first mm. pre-marketed them. So you've got some really thriving areas, and some uh, which I think will stop China from going moving into the hard landing scenario, but it certainly has some problems. So then looking at the government's reforms of the state-owned um, sector in particular, do you feel they're doing enough to make them more shareholder-friendly then? Uh, well, I think uh, Beijing is certainly trying to make the state-owned uh, sector more efficient, uh, more uh, profit-oriented, perhaps, at least for the, the time being. Um, for example, PetroChina, giant company, mm. uh, you know, dominates um, refining uh, in China. Uh, the old uh, management is is, is out uh, with Xi's anti-corruption campaign, and the new management, it lost them got MBAs. You know, they're talking for the first time about free cash flow yield or return on equity, things that you just never heard them talk about um, before. Um, so that's all very encouraging. But I caution investors to uh, against uh, inferring shareholder friendliness from efficiency. I think the ret- the reform rhetoric out of Beijing is still full of the caveats of these companies are here to ensure the stability of the state first mm. and foremost. Now, it just so happens at the moment, efficiency actually is you know, corporate profits will help the state. But I still think first and foremost, um, they're they're about it's about maintaining state stability. Yeah, you know, for example, saw a very high quality steel company that's almost certainly going to be merged with some much lesser quality mm. ones now that may be good for china inc 
but it's not going to be good for the shareholders in that high quality uh, steel company. So what kind of improvements do we want to see then um, sort of going forward? Well, um, I think at the macro level, uh, we want to see uh, greater financial liberalisation, the greater freedom for capital to be allocated to the most productive industries, uh, most productive companies. And we are seeing some uh, improvements uh, in financial liberalisation, for sure. Uh, I think at the micro level, uh, this is probably too much to ask, but it's the assurance that your company is not going to be merged with a a lower quality company. Um, But I think Mm. that's probably too much to ask. And then looking at a more global picture, what have you seen in terms of the movement of money in and out of China? Uh, Well, in Q3, uh, we've had the the fifth consecutive quarter of net private capital outflows. Mm. We've never seen more than two quarters of outflows before. It's, of course, quite difficult Mm. to get money out of of China. Now, a lot of that, I think, seems to be... um, companies repaying foreign currency denominated debt uh, and that's a, that's a good thing you know, that for the financial stability of uh, of China but I think also and this is the trend that we think will gather pace over the next five ten years uh, we're also seeing um, people who can get their money out really wanting to diversify their assets away from uh, a crazy domestic stock market a property market that is probably not going to increase in value uh, across the board anytime soon due to oversupply and you know, well there isn't much other option in China for, mm. for, for, for financial investment so there's a lot of money uh, I think waiting to get out. And how do you expect this to develop then in the future and, and what will drive the developments do you think? Well I think um, so Beijing has made it clear that you know, at least over the, the, the longer term um, capital movement will become a a lot freer money will be able to go out and more money will be able to go in Uh, now the the bull the bulls on china in the west think that a lot of money is going to be flooding into china because it's been difficult you know to buy um stocks and shares for example unless you're a qualified investor and all that but actually looking at at the body of evidence from other historical examples of of capital account opening uh, and just sort of economic theory, there's likely to be a lot more money flowing the other way, a lot of money in China mm. waiting to get out. In economics, there's a concept called the international investment position. Mm. It's how much uh, investment a country has abroad versus how much uh, uh, overseas um, investors have in, in, in that country. Now, usually the assets and liabilities there, the, the investment abroad versus uh, inward investment, uh, in an open economy is more or less equal, perhaps a few more investments abroad than in. But in, in China, Chinese, the Chinese economy has very few uh, investments abroad relative to the number of investments mm. that, that, that people have in, in, in China. And so as the, that capital account opens up, we expect the, the bulk of the adjustments to be in China's holdings of, of overseas assets. And, and I think China... Beijing realises that China doesn't have a great deal. You've got a lot of overseas people making a lot of money in China, 
but China uh, isn't making lots of money out of its mm. its assets uh, overseas, and I think it wants to raise that investment income. And of course, for our listeners, um, maybe the investment perspective is something that's um, that's quite important too. So, um, given this backdrop and everything that we've talked about, how do you view China now from from an investment perspective? Then, well, uh, so we think China's uh, undergone uh, a structural shift um, uh, to lower GDP growth, lower economic growth. So, by structural, we mean permanent. It's not a cyclical slowdown from which it's going to recover. We're moving to a permanently low rate of growth. Now, that's uh, a good thing, in 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 my opinion. Um, but it does mean that investors. Uh, you know, geared into China, need to make sure that their assumptions that they're making about you know, future cash flows, future revenue streams, uh, reflect that permanently lower shift uh, in, in, in growth. And if we look at, um, say, Thomson Reuters aggregate you know, long-term EPS mm. forecast, long-term EPS assumptions, earnings per share assumptions uh, from bottom-up equity analysts, and we can see that they're still... they've They've moved lower, but they're still very much in the range of the last 15 years. Now, if this is a structural permanent shift to lower growth, we would need to see more of an adjustment there. So that's the main reason why, yeah, as a blanket sort of broad-based index investment into Asia and China, we're still rather cautious. But as I said at the beginning of, th- of this podcast, we spoke about the old China and mm. the new China uh and the various um investments in the region geared into that new china there is certainly still opportunity there there are certainly new private companies doing very well um yeah exploiting this huge velocity of wealth creation uh, in china but we do but even there we would expect volatility and in terms of the way to access this perhaps it's not it, it's it's more complicated investment products than than simple sort of passive investments well i would yeah i mean it has to be active stock picking mm active stock picking yeah great well thank you very much ed i'm here with harry dent author of the demographic cliff and founder of dent research um, so, Harry, first, I wanted to talk to you about um, what exactly is going on with demographics in the world at the moment. Yeah, you know, demographics is a way to see around the, the corners. We know exactly when people spend the most money in and, and, and different sectors of the economy, but, but overall, most people peak around age 46 to 47. So you can see a new generation like the baby boom, when they're going to spend more money and not any country in the world. And this indicator in the late 80s told us Japan was going to collapse in the 90s while Europe and the U.S. were going to have the greatest boom in history because they were in the prime part of their baby boom spending cycle. Now that cycle is turning over in more and more countries, first in the U.S., now in Europe, and then finally in South Korea and places like that. So demographics told me that Japan was going to have a major downturn in the 90s. Nobody saw that coming in 1989 because the economy looked better than ever. Right now, Germany is going to be one of the biggest surprises. It has the weakest demographics of any country in Europe, and everybody's relying on Germany to hold up the Eurozone. All of Central Europe and Southern Europe have terrible demographics, as, as, as bad as Japan for the coming decades. The Northern Europe, UK, France, is kind of more sideways in trends, but, but down at first. And, and uh, Scandinavia has the best demographics. But overall, Europe is weaker than the United States. Um, and the United States has 
still bad demographics. So, so we see the world going into a second downturn after 2008 and 2009, um, and, and, and governments are trying to prevent that by endlessly printing money, especially in Europe and Japan now. But, but you, you can only do that so long. All they're doing is creating bubbles in stocks and real estate because the money's not going into lending because consumers already over-borrowed and businesses over-borrowed and expanded in, the, in, the, in this inflated bubble boom. So all the money is doing is pushing up stock markets and real estate and things like that, creating a bubble that has to burst again. And when it bursts, a lot of wealth is going to be destroyed. So we're very, we think 2016 is going to be the year that this is going to hit the hardest and it's going to be worse than 2008 and 2009. So we're just telling people, be cautious, be safe, cash out of the bubble while you can, especially in real estate that gets very illiquid. And where can investors um, allocate in, in these circumstances at the moment then? Well, you know, that's the challenge. We have a, a system that shows that the economy goes through four seasons, a spring boom, a summer inflationary recession like the 70s, a fall bubble boom with falling interest rates like we've seen recently, and then a, a, a winter deflationary season where all these bubbles burst. These bubbles in, in financial assets burst. That destroys wealth. It doesn't come back for a long time. Loans get written down, especially against real estate. That, 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 that destroys money. That causes deflation. If you look at the winter seasons in the past, uh, like the 1930s, unfortunately, asset allocation doesn't work because all these bubbles burst. Only the highest quality government bonds and the highest quality corporate bonds do well. In the, in the Great Depression in the United States, corp, high quality corporate and government bonds roughly doubled in value at a time where everything else, real estate, commodities, and stocks sank. Stocks peaked in 1929, did not get back to those levels 24 years to 1953. So when stock brokers say, oh, that's all right, stocks always come back, they'll come back, we've got you diversified. Diversification did not work in 2008 when everything went down. Commodities, stocks, real estate, it will not work. And a lot of things, real estate and stocks will go down and be very slow to come back. This only happens once in a lifetime, and nobody's going to see this coming. time for our news segment where we discuss some of the stories which have been making headlines lately and what they might mean for investors. I'm joined by Investment Week's asset management correspondent Jaina Rana. So Jaina, the main story we will be discussing today is the news um, of the reshuffle in management at Stewart Investors. So can you tell us a bit more about that? So the big story recently was the changes in portfolio management responsibilities at Stewart Investors, formerly First State. Earlier in the month, Investment Week revealed that Angus Tullock, Jonathan Asante and David Gates will be handing over management of their respective funds by the 1st of July 2016. So Tullock, who is widely regarded as a veteran in the industry, he's been around for 35 years, he'll be stepping down from the £8 billion Stewart Investors Asia-Pacific Leaders Fund, which will be co-managed by David Gate and Sashi Reggie. Mm. He'll also be handing responsibility for the Asia-Pacific Fund over to Ashish Swarup, but will remain as co-manager. Then there's Asante, again another big name at the firm. He's been at Stewart Investors since 2004. He'll be stepping down from both the OIC and the global version of the Stewart Investors Global Emerging Markets Leaders Funds, as well as others, which will be managed by Ashish Swarup and Tom Prue. 
His responsibilities for other funds, including the Stuart Investors Worldwide Leaders, will transition to Sashi Reddy and the Sustainable Funds team. As for David Gates, he'll no longer be sole manager, but will be sharing responsibility for the Worldwide Sustainability Funds with Nick Edgerton as a co-manager. So huge changes um, then at Stuart Investors. But the real question is, why has this happened? So Stuart Investors have said that these changes have been made to broaden responsibilities across the team. The firm's culture, philosophy and processes will stay the same as will its main focus and that's to protect client capital and to deliver long-term investment returns. It's also important to note that these changes aren't linked to the firm splitting into two earlier this year. Stuart Investors said the reshuffle was discussed long before but the announcement wasn't made in July because no decision was made then and changing portfolio responsibility is a continuing process. So what have these changes meant for buyers then? Have there been any knee-jerk reactions from them at all? Well, fund buyers have said the changes won't make them sell holding straight away, but that the new managers will need to prove themselves before confidence is restored. After the announcement, the investment researchers Fund Calibre removed their elite rating on the Stuart Investors Global Emerging Market Leaders and Asia-Pacific Leaders Funds, so there is a lot of work to do. Darius McDermott, MD at Fund Calibre said the news had been very unsettling for investors. The teams have only recently been split into two and now we have some substantial changes with some very experienced lead managers taking a back seat. He praised the work of the new managers in line, Swarup and Prue, but he reiterated that they will have something to prove. On the other hand, some believe there's no need for any rash decisions, no need for knee-jerk reactions. Jason Hollins at Tilney Best Invest said everyone needs to remember that the Stuart Investors approach is very team-based and the managers are still going to be involved. It's not like Tullock is disappearing into the sunset. Have the managers said anything about this themselves then? Well, Tullock recently said he's not putting his feet up. He's actually ready for broader investment challenges, ones that will allow him to look at companies outside of global emerging markets and Asia. He also said every portfolio manager takes the grooming of a successor very seriously and has a say in who takes over, and that he wouldn't be happy to go ahead unless he was happy with their capabilities, which is quite nice really, and I guess somewhat reassuring for investors. I suppose all we can do is wait and see what the managers do. Exactly. Well, thank you very much, Jaina. That's all we have time for today. If you have any ideas or suggestions for future podcasts, please contact me on my email, which is um, anna.fedorova, that's spelled F-E-D-O-R-O-V-A, at incisivemedia.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>